Is this working? It, it is, George. We're actually live actually, hey, now. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, oh, écoute, oh. écoute, come on, guys. We can do much better than that. Okay, okay, okay. <clears throat> Hello, I'm Mvam Georges-André Collinet. And I'm Martin Banning Air. <laughs> Martin? Martin? No, get out of here. <laughs> Martin? <laughs> wow, c'est vrai. Oui, c'est vrai. And I'm Mokwai, Princess Wabay Siolwe, and you are listening to the maiden voyage of our new podcast. Planet Afropop. A production of Afropop Worldwide. That's right. Twice monthly, we're going to bring you new music, interviews, live reports from our correspondents, and much more. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've been the host of our public radio program, Afropop Worldwide, from PRX for... Planning, how long have we been together? It's been 35 years, George. Nah, come on. Count them, count them. <laughs> I've been married 40 years. You mean I've, I've been married to you almost as long as the, with my wife? Almost as long. Oh, my <laughs> God. I tell you. Well, we've taken you all to Africa, the African diaspora, and introduced you to artists and styles from Sukus to Bakanga and all these nice little things that would twist your legs. All the way up to the era of Amapiano and Afrobeats, right? I don't know. if I'm not as excited. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Absolutely. And of course, you can still hear our program on good old terrestrial radio or in this podcast feed. But here we're going to do something different, okay? Yeah, that's right. We're going to focus on what's happening today on our African planet. Mm. It might be, you know, a new artist you've never heard of before or news about an Afropop veteran. Maybe a hot new song or a dance challenge on TikTok. But today, we'll bring you our interview with Afrobeat star Yemi Aliday and introduce you to an all-female Mexican hip-hop rap group called Las Hijas del Rap. Oh, wow. Las Hijas del Rap. Mm, del rap. <laughs> and we'll check in with veteran Afropop producer Ned Sublet about our celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. You know what? The best thing of all, guys, is that we're going to be talking to each other and we're going to discuss things that that matter to us and things that we think people need mm -hmm. to know. We'll keep things loose and spontaneous. Loose. Okay. And talk about rap. <laughs> Not too loose. So you don't want me to read my script? No. <laughs> no, that's over, George. Starting right now, we're ripping up the script and going live. Oh, my mom. Where's my mother? Can't see without a script. <laughs> Tear it up. Yeah. How do I do? Tearing up the script and oh, going live. <laughs> <laughs> okay, McQuay, that's right. Don't, don't you exaggerate. You always overdo it. Gee whiz, Louise. That's not my name. My name is McQuay. Can you say it properly? It's McQuay. 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 Siolwe. Siolwe. It's a name with a story, you know, George. I think listeners of the program know a bit of our story. You know, we've been talking to each other on the air, especially at the end of the year, for many years. But I don't think we really uh, know all that much about McQuay. Our listeners certainly don't. And she's got a lot of stories, I'll tell you. She certainly has. <laughs> and she's going to regale us. Well, introduce yourself, McQuay, to our hopefully loyal listeners. Well, let, first let me tell you what McQuay means. Mkwai means princess. That's actually a, a title given to women in the royal family in Barotsiland in southern Africa. In where? In where, where, where? Oh, right, right. Barotsiland. 
You can look it up on a map. It actually exists. People tried to take it off the map, but we are very much alive and our kingdom is very much still operating. But if they're looking at the borders as drawn on the uh, National Geographic map, this is going to cross a few of them. Give us an idea. Yes. So Barotsiland was an empire between 1200 and pretty much the Italian Boundary Treaty in like 1906. And it basically was eastern Angola, northeastern Namibia, northern Botswana, Kasani area, Wanki area in northern Zimbabwe, and of course, in Zambia, all the way up to the Copper Belt. Boy, that's huge. Wow. Yeah, it's massive. It was huge. It was huge, huge, huge. And it's now sort of isolated in western Zambia. But we're all related through kinship and we all cross these constructed colonial borders for rituals and things like that. So. Hmm. That's an exciting part of Africa, you know. I've, I've been there only once. People there are so beautiful. You know, the ochre covered with ochre, the himba. Oh, the himba. They're cousins of ours, oh, yes. Wow. The himba, the kwanyama in Namibia are cousins to us. The herero, who are related to the himba, or himba in, in Namibia. So that whole area used to be one vast empire connected through kinship. My ancestors, in particular my great-great-grandfather, who was King Liwanika of Barotsiland, who was born in 1842 and died in 1916. He married princesses all along the Zambezi and the Okavango and the Kavango rivers. And um, so we're all related through marriage. Why do I know Wanika? Ruanika. Oh, Ruanika, Ruanika. Okay. That's the real pronunciation. But the British don't know how to do the Ruanyi. So they just, <laughs> they just said, okay, let's just call him Liwanika. Ah, but there's Wanika bands in Kenya, yeah. I believe. In Kenya, is that's that what a I was... different word, or is it? No, it's actually pretty much the root of the word. These are all Bantu plus Nilotic words. You know, there were so many migrations in Africa that people are only just sort of realizing. People sort of think that the world has just always been this way, and it's not. <laughs> this is all very, very recent. So we are related to people from Kenya, and specifically the Noor from um, from Sudan. Sudan. Exactly. But you inherit the title of a princess. How does that happen? It happens through birth. We have a matrilineal system. Francois Colliard, a French Huguenot missionary, came to Barotsiland and Christianity came with him. That system became more patriarchal, but we have a very strong matriarchal system. This is on your mother's side, matrilineal. Yes, this is on my mother's side. Okay. Yes. So Liwanika was her great-grandfather who was the king of Barotsiland, who was an honorary founder of the African National Congress in South Africa in 1902. 1902. Yeah, 1902, by the way, huge year in African colonial history. Huge, especially in Southern Africa. Why? Well, because of Queen Victoria. She died and that was the end of an age. And we're at the same moment right now after the end of Queen Elizabeth. It's almost like history repeating itself. You told us about your mother. Tell us about your father. Because he's an interesting character too, as I recall. Yes, very interesting cat. His origins that he never really spoke about and might not even have known are Tosa from South Africa. And um, basically during the so-called Mfakeni, when basically uh, there was this expulsion, another migration out of South Africa that people attribute to Shaka Zulu, but I question that. Uh Yes, my group are the Siolwe clan. We are a group that were almost like travelers. We were expelled, but also left South Africa and moved to Zimbabwe, to the area that was Barotsiland, actually, close to the Vic Falls area of, of Zimbabwe. Is that where your parents met? Well, my parents, the story is that they eloped, so I don't know all the story about it. They eloped? <laughs> okay, good for them. 
Good for them. They did elope. Yeah, they did elope. Because she was a princess and he was a commoner. Oh, that's a nice story. So because he married this princess, he was able to socially climb very quickly. He went to university in Australia in the 50s. He's a math scholar originally. And then he came back to Zambia. So he was one of the first Zambian diplomats to be sent to the United Nations in 1967, 68 in New York to establish the first mission outside of Zambia at the time of the civil rights movement. He was an artist deep down in his heart. And so he loved to have artists around him. So we were exposed to many Southern Africans who were in exile as musicians in the Miriam Makeba, Huma Sakela, all of those groups. And then basically his mission was to help the liberation of Southern Africa by being part of the push to create Resolution 435 at the United Nations. Which was? Resolution 435 was the blueprint for the independence of Namibia. So from there, suddenly you appear at the door of Afropop. Hello. <laughs> How did that happen? That's a story. It's actually the same story, Georges, because as an African, you know, the only thing that I really care about is that we are whole. And the journey started in the 60s. Well, the journey for me started turning the last century with my great-great-grandfather and his journey to England in 1902. I'm just part of that same ancestral journey. Mm. And so Afropop was key for me because in the 1990s and late 80s, there was nobody thinking about Africa in any kind of positive way. Do you remember those days, Georges? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was trying madly. I do. Just to uh, bring our listeners in, we're talking about 1989, basically the first year the show was on the air. And McQuay, you landed up in Washington, D.C. and were briefly an intern at Afropop. That's the story. That's right. And and the thing is, I had gone to music school in the U.K. and went to boarding school in the U.K. and had that very British <laughs> kind of education. But the Britain at that time wasn't embracing anything African, you know, literally there was like the Africa Center. That was it that existed in London at the time. And there was literally like one barbershop in Brixton in the 1970s. <laughs> you know, the UK was not what you see today. And so when I went to the Guildhall of School of Music, I worked with Leonard Bernstein. And by the way, they're doing this beautiful feature film on him that Bradley Cooper is going to be in. Really? And then I found out that Richard Attenborough was going to direct a film on uh, Steve Biko. And so the casting director came to see me and, and then I got a role in Cry Freedom co-starring with, with Denzel Washington. Really? Yeah, and I really, really wanted to stay connected. After my trip to Zimbabwe, where we filmed that, Yeah. you know, and the Zimbabwean government gave us $2 million to do that film. So That's amazing. Yeah, and this was Thomas Mokfumo was at his height. We went to his house and Yvonne Vera and Titi Dangaremba, Dambudo Marachera. Huh. These are all brilliant Zimbabwean artists that were all emerging at the same time. I really got caught up in that movement and I decided that I was going to leave the UK. And then I heard about Afropop through Merrick Crawford, who was working with Marika Partridge at NPR. This guy called Sean Barlow and this guy called Banning Air. Uh, these two white guys have got this NPR 52 part radio series, but they love Africa and they're great champions and um, <laughs> they need some help. I was just like in a segue on my way back to Namibia uh, because Namibia was going to become independent in 1990. So, uh, so I thought, oh, let me just work for Afropop and as an intern in the meantime. That's how I got to Afropop, <laughs> 1989. Amazing. 
I want to jump back a second to your father, because at the time when he was in the UN, he was very involved in liberation struggles in places like Zimbabwe and Angola. And how did that work? There was an organization of Southern African states called the Frontline States that decided to take the responsibility of trying to help their comrades in South Africa, Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, Rhodesia rather, because it was Rhodesia at the time, Namibia and South Africa. So a lot of his work was related to supporting the armed struggles in Southern Africa by giving access to people within the armed struggle for uh, refuge in different countries. We, We lived in Cairo He was almost like a guardian for many of the African students who were there, and as well as Moscow, where we lived. So in that capacity, he used to make collaborations with education systems in Cuba and in Russia and sent a lot of young Africans to medical school in Cuba, in Guantanamo, and as well as to study political science and and medicine at Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow. It's interesting that you were very close through your father to the machinations Mm. of the forming of the African states we know now in the early 60s. And George, you too have a lot of stories to tell about (laughs) your uh, connections to various leaders in that. You guys have lived the history, man. I've just been reading about it. (laughs) Well, mine is a different story. I was a student and I was coming out of my forest, deep forest in Central Africa, in Cameroon, where my father ruled mm. and uh, my great-grandparents and all on ruled. I was a descendant of chieftains. But the amazing thing is that when I came to America in 1960, exactly, it was so funny because I didn't know anything about Africa. I was born there. I was born in the forest. I knew my village, which is a little enclave in the middle of this vast ocean of uh, trees from Nigeria all the way to Zimbabwe and all that, to the Horn of Africa, to the Bantu uh, land. But, you know, in New York, somebody says, oh, George, why don't you come with me? There's uh, this African guy. It must be you. Maybe he's your brother. I say, what? Yeah, yeah. His name is uh, Babatunde Olatunji. And I said, what does he do? I said, well, he plays drum. Well, I say, everybody plays drum in Africa. <laughs> what does it have? He said, well, he is amazing. That's when I met the first time Harry Belafonte. Oh, Harry, yes. He was another person that used to walk through our life. Yeah. And he certainly walked through our Afropop life. He was a great friend to us. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is where I started my life, my uh, grown-up life. Well, actually, I started in France where I was singing a lot. I was supposed to be the next Johnny Holiday. I mean, the Johnny Holiday. Right, you were an artist. Wow, I never knew that about you. But I'm not surprised. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it was very funny. Well, one of the things we'll do on this podcast is obviously get to know each other better and hear a lot of these stories. And we have to talk, of course we will, about what's happening in Africa now, because with all the perspective that particularly you two bring to the table, it's very confusing to try to understand what's happening with all these changes of heads of state. And you knew a lot of these guys, George. Most of them, yes. A lot of them wanted to know me. They they wanted to use you as a, as a publicity arm? Yeah, yeah, because I was so successful with my radio show. Yeah. On Voice of America, right? Uh, on the Voice of America, yeah, that uh, that all these African presidents were saying, oh, well, George, why don't you come? I'll send you my plane. That sounds right. That sounds like what daddy would do. He would send the plane. Send the plane, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the best one is with Mobutu. He sends this big, huge, I forgot, the TriStar, was it? 
the one before the 747, to come and visit him in his village. And we're going and flying and flying and flying. And then from Kinshasa to his village, it's another three and a half hour, almost four hours. Wow. And I'm sitting there and I'm alone in that big, huge machine. And the pilot said, Monsieur Collinet, can you please uh, fasten your seatbelt? We're going to land. And I looked out the window. I said, La- land where? I mean... They used to call it the parsley garden because it looks like parsley from way up there. It's amazing. And then suddenly it opens up and there's a clearing in that parsley world. And guess what is there? A little airstrip, one would hope. Yes, (laughs) with Le Concorde. Oh, really? Get out. The Concorde was parked down there. And I called the hostess. I said, Madame, 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 excuse me, can can you please... Am I crazy or this the Concorde? I said, oh, wait, 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 wait. The, the president uh, went to a shopping spree uh, in, in Monte Carlo, in Monaco. Oh, la, la. So he hired the Concorde. And then the other one was actually Bongo. Bongo would listen to my show every day. He was a music fan. Everybody in his government is musician. Everyone. This is the father or the son? The son, Ali Bongo, that has been uh, sent on, on retirement Ali Bongo, yes. I read that he subjects visitors to his saxophone playing. Not only that, but he used to hire James Brown, a producer, to produce his own music and to help him get gigs and stuff like that. Wow. George, were you involved in any kind of way with the rumble in the jungle in the Congo, the boxing match? No, 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 I was not. I was not because I had a terrible problem with malaria. For those young listeners, Muhammad Ali and Joe Fraser, sort of Don King, did a wager to bet that, you know, I'm going to take you all to Africa and we want to see which of you is really the world's greatest boxer. And they both were up for it. And uh, it just became this whole sort of cultural event that had so many things spring from it. And then they had the big music festival that had to go on anyway because Fraser got injured and there was a delay and such a great story. And there's been great films about it now, so people know about it. Oh, lovely. I love my favorite documentary is, I think it's called When We Were Kings. When We Were Kings. Brilliant, brilliant documentary. But George, when the Rumble in the Jungle happened, you were doing your VOA show, right? Yeah, yeah. But I had a bout with malaria that was just killing me. That's your excuse for missing the rumble in the jungle? And plus, the thing is, the rumble in the jungle, Mobutu looked at me with a little... didn't really trust me because somebody had told him that I could help him and promote him, blah, 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 blah. And then another one said, but you know, George is American and he's not going to do things the way you want it. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. The way you want it. He's going to do it his own way. (laughs) And that made him nervous. (laughs) And uh, so he said, tell him to go away. (laughs) So no more pink champagne for you. No, no, no. It it came afterwards. All right. Well, we'll have to get to that story, too. Yes. And we've got definitely a new chapter in global history happening before our very eyes. And it seems like Afropop well, Afrobeats and just African music, contemporary music in general, is just like the soundtrack to this new life that we're heading into. You know, there's a great release of the African bands that played at that festival. It's called Zaire 74. And let's check out a little bit of Franco playing at the great festival in 1974. <laughs> 
was Franco Luambo Macchiadi, my good buddy. Oh, my God. There was a big battle between him and Rochereau because the Americans were keeping me awake. Franco went on the national radio to say, the Americans are taking Georges Collinet away from us. This is not right. And he was supposed to be here. And then Rochereau said, no, he was supposed to be at my place. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh. Wow. No. Uh, and my friend Mabeka, who was the top radio presenter in Kinshasa at the time, he was laughing and laughing. He said, I laughed for a month <laughs> because of this. Well, luckily, we ended up with Georges Collinet. All those other guys were the losers. <laughs> exactly. That's what I say. Bravo. So before we move on to our interview with Yemi Day. This month and into next month, into October, is Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes, yes. And we are celebrating an Afropop Worldwide with four excellent programs, starting off with Cumbia, and then the Cumbia Diaspora, and ending up with Santa Domingo Blues, the story of Bachata with Alex Wolf, that great conversation you had with him. Uh-huh. But in between those two... We have two shows produced by the inimitable producer, author, singer, songwriter, and post-Mambo scholar, Ned Sublet. And Ned is joining us oh, now. Ned. Hi, Ned. How are you, Ned? Hi, wow. George. Hi, Benning. It's great to be on this inaugural Afropop podcast oh, yeah. experience. Planet Afropop. Here we are. <laughs> you know, it would be nice to tell the people what is Hispanic Heritage Month, because it's to celebrate the contribution of uh, Hispanics in the United States. Which simply means Spanish-speaking people. <laughs> That's a lot of people and a lot of cultures. And we, we hit a number of them in these shows. But Ned, tell us about the two shows we're going to hear from you on September 21st, the week of September 21st and 28th. The Boogaloo Show, which is September 21st, was originally produced in 1993, 30 years ago. 1993? 1993, and it's still one of my favorites. It's a perennial because, number one, the music is irresistible. Yeah. Number two, we had great interviews. I think the uh, most fun interview I ever had was Joe Cuba, who, may he rest in peace, who came to my then office in Midtown and hung out and just talked for three hours, completely <laughs> candid. I, uh, I Broadcast standards wouldn't allow me to use some of the things he said, some of the funniest <laughs> But we also, I also talked to Tony Pabon, who was the lead singer on the famous Pete Rodriguez record, I Like It Like That, which is the record that is impossible to dislike out of all time. comes to us from a moment in the second half of the 60s when the embargo of Cuba had really taken effect and as Eddie Palmieri once said there was the mambo and after that there was the cha-cha-cha and after that there was the pachanga and after that there was nothing what he meant was all this music had been coming in the ironic thing about that is what was after that was Eddie Palmieri but um 
at this moment when the Cuban influence, which had always set the style in Latin New York, stopped coming in, just cut off, right? Puerto Rican New York was thrust front and center. And people in the barrio, East Harlem, were living in the same space as African-Americans. And you can hear it today. If you come up out of the subway at 125th Street, it's no different. You hear uh, music in Spanish and you hear uh, the latest African-American jams. So this was always a tendency. And they made a pop music that could communicate to absolutely anybody. So that's Boogaloo. I just love that show, and I'm delighted it's being repeated. And I hope you still have that interview with Joe Cuba, the whole unedited version. That belongs in the archive. (laughs) 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 Somewhere. We're going to have to come over and do some scavenging in here one of these days. (laughs) But the other show, Soneros Mayores, which has also been a perennial, I'm happy to say. I forget the year we did. It was also in the 90s. And it was just to honor uh, the two great national singers of Cuba and Puerto Rico who were very different kinds of people with very different kinds of styles, but both of whom have been absolutely identified with the music of the nation ever since their, in both cases, untimely demises. Benny Moray from Cuba and Ismael Rivera from Puerto Rico. Now, pretty much everybody knows Benny Moray. He was kind of the universal Cuban. They love him in Havana. They love him in Miami. Ismael Rivera is known to Puerto Ricans and not as much to the wider world, which I think is too bad because Ismael Rivera from Santurce, Puerto Rico, had a unique percussive style of soneoing or improvising his lyrics and melodies. He would sing a line of a song and fill out to the end of the line with vocal percussive syllables, mm. whether it was, you know, rukutuk, rukutuk, rukutak, or belem, belem, belem. His mouth was a drum, even as it was, <laughs> even as it was a source that. of these profoundly moving lyrics. That's great stuff, Ned. Thank you. And so, folks, that's the reason to uh, tune into your public radio station over the next month. Or, of course, you get it through the same podcast feed that you're hearing this podcast. So, Ned, uh, since it is Hispanic Heritage Month, um, you've got some trips coming up, don't you, to uh, major sites of Hispanic culture. Give us a brief on that. I do. Well, for quite some years now, I've been uh, taking music immersion travel groups what we call the post-mambo music seminars. January 1st through 10th, we're going to Cuba for a trip called La Ruta de los Fundamentos, visiting sacred sites in the Afro-Cuban tradition in Western Cuba, where uh, Mm. we'll be visiting Regla, where probably 100,000 Africans got off the ship right there. Uh, We'll be visiting Matanzas, Pinar del Rio, and lots of places you've never heard of. And then uh, February 27th through March 12th, two weeks in Andalusia, going, oh, oh my gosh, going mm. to uh, Sevilla, the city where the guitar emerges, where, uh, where potatoes and yeah. tomatoes were planted in Europe for the first time. 
Cadiz, the oldest city in Western Europe, mm. Jerez, where we attend the Flamenco Festival, Granada, the last place in Iberia to have an Islamic government right up until 1492, and Cordoba, which people like to say it was the New York City of Europe in the year 1000 with the magnificent cathedral, which is a mosque. Absolutely gorgeous. I've been there. Fantastic place. Yeah. If you want to know about it, write me info at postmambo, P as in Peter, O-S-T-M-A-M-B-O.com. Info at postmambo.com. Thank you, Benny. And thank you, Ned. That's great. Ned, you have been doing our series. It's a long series on uh, Cuban music for who? I wasn't even born yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. The 19-part Cuban Connection series, uh, an amazing achievement, one of the jewels in the crown of Afropop worldwide. That's another one you can check out at afropop.org. Absolutely. Thanks, Ned. Thank you, Banning. Thank you, George. I just want to say that this is really going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have lots of special features. We want to hear from you, people who are listening to this. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. McQuay is going to be doing a regular section on trending, cool new things right. that are happening. Like, you got, you got any mm. trending yeah, for us today? Yeah, the trend right now, which is just shocking to me, is that American record labels are not signing hip-hop artists anymore. What? Yeah. It's it's just all over the news right now. Everybody's talking about it. They're not signing American hip hop artists anymore. It's for it's the real thing. It's really happening before our very eyes. Who are they signing? They're signing Africans. Wow! Hallelujah! Oh, can you believe God it? God save! <laughs> After all these years, <laughs> God save Afro pop worldwide. We can retire now. <laughs> There's a new head of Virgin Records as well in Nigeria. It's like every record label is creating a platform in Lagos. Lagos is actually the new New York City. I've been listening to so many different artists talk about it, African-American um, hip-hop artists talking about this real shift. Fascinating. So uh, as listeners likely know to this program, I have a fascination with African guitar music. I'm very old school in that way, but I keep finding new exciting things. You're a guitarist yourself. That's right. And I will be bringing uh, occasional focuses on guitar players who I've loved or who I discover. And I think we're going to do a feature called Our Favorite Songs, where Mm. each of us will bring a song to the podcast and um, let the other ones hear it and talk about it. So we got lots on our plate here, folks. We're glad you've joined us, and we hope you'll stick with us as we christen this inaugural edition of Planet Afropop. Planet Afropop Part 2. And we're going to start with Yemi Halende. Mukwe, you know her 
No, I've never met her personally, but I absolutely adored her goddess stature within the music industry in Nigeria and even Africa. She's just mm. a beautiful storyteller, quirky. And of course, Johnny, that incredible music video that she did, Johnny, Johnny. That was her breakthrough. But she's been in the Lion King movie with Beyonce, and she's won. Boy, you look at her on Wikipedia, she's won every award you can think of. Oh, amazing. And you met her, Benny. I met her, yes, with Sean. Um, we were at the incredible Nuit d'Afrique Festival in Montreal in July, mm. and we have a number of great things we recorded there that we'll be sharing in the editions to come. But we thought we'd start with Yemi because she was just such a catch. And we got to sit with her. It was actually in the Nuit d'Afrique office. So you'll hear a bit of rustling around of things that are happening in that busy office where they put on so many acts over a period of two weeks. It's just a fantastic festival. And as I say, we'll be hearing more about it. But we start out with a little bit of Yemi's set from the Radio Canada stage at Nuit d'Afrique in Montreal. Hi, 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 hi. Yummy, we don't have a lot of time, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your early life, you know, how, how you became a musician in the first place. Short version. How I became a musician. I have loved music my entire life. And one day I participated in a talent show in 2009. And for some reason I won. And that was all the the conviction that I needed to finally make it a career. But from the age of six, I was already writing my own songs. I remember I used to make small phrases that I would repeat and repeat, and my mom got tired of it, so I started recording on tapes. I was very much involved in music, but I just loved it, but I didn't want to make it a career yet. But winning that prize? It changed it all for me. It chose me, the fact that I was chosen I surrendered to it. Beautiful. And how were your parents? Did they support the uh, choice or that was a little difficult? I feel like they, my parents always saw it coming because like I said, I was all over the place with music. My mom would ask me a question and I would sing a response to her. You know, and in school, I was in the choir. In every level of school, I was in the, I was in the school choir representing the school. So I believe they saw it coming and we never had a conversation of a, oh, do you really want to make this happen? Do you really want, we never had that conversation. It just took a natural flow and it supported me. It took a big jump, if I'm right, with the song Johnny. What year was that? That was uh, 2013, 2014. Okay, so, so you were well into your career. What was that like, that moment when that song hit? I will never forget it because I literally felt my life changing for the better in a way that I couldn't explain. You know, in 2010 when I won the talent show, I released my first music in 2011 
and I released a couple of other music, and I was trying to understand the kind of artist I wanted to be. You know, it's it the artist development stage that I was in, both mentally and in the actual works of it. And then, in 2013, when this song, Journey, came out, I saw that the response was quite a huge wave. It started from the east of Nigeria, moved to the west, and then eventually the south. And next thing, in other African countries, we're getting calls. And that's when I knew something big had hit. Before we could blink our eyes, just in a blink of an eye, the entire world was gravitating to it. I knew something huge had changed for me. We were listening to a bunch of your music driving up yesterday from New York, and, uh, and I was noticing that you have a very interesting soundscape. It's minimal in the sense it's very open and spacious, and a lot of very unusual, interesting sounds in there. Um, did you have a, an engineer that you, that you sort of bonded with and came up with a vision, or how, how did you come about your sense of how to actually make the sound of the music to support your voice? Musically, for me, I'm, I'm just who I am. When I listen to music or instruments, I allow it to resonate with me. It must resonate with me before I lay my vocal on it. There's just something, when it hits me, I know it's the one, you know. I work with several producers, but most especially, I, I'm an open book. I don't like to put in a box. I could be singing music today that is more R&B. Next minute, I could switch to techno. But this is because I am a musical vessel. I am who I am at that point in time. There's one song on the album from last year, Baddy, that um, has a kind of a highlight feel to it. That's, I'm forgetting the title. Dancehall. Yes, that one. It's very interesting to me the way artists of your generation either choose to refer back to older sounds or not to. How do you use them? What's your sort of your, your attitude towards drawing influences from the classic styles like Juju, High Life, whatever, Afrobeat? Oh, the core of my music, the foundation of my career is actually Juju. But the foundation of my musical journey, that is from the beginning of Inception, when I was born, foundation is R&B, blues, jazz, and then rap. Even before the high life and Juju started to make more prominence in my life. But as I unraveled and became myself, I found that high life and Juju were sounds that once they hit me, I would feel like some kind of electrical volts go through my body. It, it is the one for me. Yemi, uh, in the program for the Nui Da Freak here, it refers you to as the queen of Afropop. Do you like that reference to you as the queen of Afropop? I have been what called so many things. The most important part of my being is my name because it, it holds so much meaning. Um, when I was just starting off my career, I had the opportunity to choose other names I liked. Like, I wanted to go with Electra. I wanted to go with Ginger. These were names that I felt would describe my personality on stage. But after much thought, I realized that my name, which means the one who holds the crown. Yemi Alade. Yemi Alade. Thanks be to God, the one who, who holds the crown. That one just solidifies everything that I am. And if you notice, all my album titles are towards royalty, towards, um, you know, just the dynasty of being royal, you know? 
And at the end of the day, that is what is most important to me. My name is also Mama Africa. They call me Afro Queen. They call me Afro Pop Queen. They call me Afro Beats Queen. I have they... to say, Yemi Alade is a name that sounds very nice when sung, too. You sing it a lot in the I know. In the... <laughs> oh, people, sometimes people walk up to me like, Yemi Alade. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I did that to myself. But I love it. It's I love beautiful. It. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of album titles, the last one, African Baddie, and the song, I was listening to the song and I'm thinking, well, in that song, who are you addressing? Are you the baddie or are you addressing the baddie? Or talk, talk to me about the lyrics of that interesting song. African Baddie is a song that I drew inspiration from the dancehall vibe. So I make some dancehall. I definitely put it the Afro, Afro beat in there and Afro pop majorly. And then I put in um, some R&B into that. The body in the song is definitely me. I am, in summary, trying to say that this particular person that I'm interested in is kind of making me want to spend my own money. Whereas normally in the world that we lead today is the other way around. The guy's just spending the lady, right? So I'm like, you make me want to spend my pounds. You make me spend my dollars. You make me want to spend my time on you. Mm. But I'm a baddie still. A royal baddie. Always. <laughs> the crown does not move. <laughs> does not move. That's very interesting, that role reversal, where you're basically telling someone, you know, I'm not going to just keep handing you money. Mm -mm. I said, you make me want to. I didn't say I ever spent it. <laughs> The cliche is the sort of the sugar daddy who's paying for his woman, you know, but mm. uh, but you've, you've turned that around. I remember the first time we talked, we talked about your song Boys, which also was another of those sort of twists, you know? Yeah, yeah, true, true. Sometimes I go, when I'm writing, sometimes I, I come through the angle that maybe the guys normally would, are normally known to sing from, the, the direction in which they would throw their words. Most times I come from that direction. Because, I mean, if, if, if you have all that money, you might as well spend it sometimes, right? That's right. <laughs> so how do you see the scene developing now um, in the Afrobeat scene? We talked a couple of years ago, and, and we were talking about women on the scene. And, you know, obviously there's some very prominent ones. Now you're leading the way. Do you feel like this is a slow process, or is, is it really starting to move in terms of the, just the openness for a woman in this profession? I think many years ago, it might have seemed kind of slow. But at the moment, it's moving at such a pace. It's moving at the sound of light. We have to make sure that the moment doesn't pass us. We need to latch onto it and make true meaning of it. A lot of people believed and still believe that by now, the spotlight on Afrobeats by now would have dwindled or disappeared, would have gone, but it's still here. And it's still here for a reason because the propagators of Afrobeats, the people, are not stopping. We are lighting that fire every day. And as long as we continue to do that, even if, for instance, whatever spotlight lives, we will have created something bigger than us. It's true. And that is exactly what is happening right yeah. now. It's moving at the pace that it needs to move at.
You just need to make meaning of it. Some people have commented that careers can rise and fall very quickly. You know, you have people who are really on top and then, you know, they're quickly overtaken by us. Do you have any kind of strategy for longevity, you know, stay relevant, how to stay in the scene, or do you just take each day as it comes? To be sincere, if I were to tell you that I knew, then I, that means everybody would know the exact same thing and we would all know have the answers, but... <laughs> my team and I, what we, what we do the best is just be ourselves and do what we can with all that we have while making sure that we're making sense of it. We're doing it for ourselves and not just rushing to try and please or grab, not for the attention. I love music. Sometimes I say, oh, I'm going to take a break, but then I can't even last a day. <laughs> I mean, what am I going to do? <laughs> and so for as long as that passion, that zest is in me, I will keep going and so will my team. And I think that in a way is definitely the backbone of longevity and also being original. I'm original to myself. As far as I'm concerned, there's no one like me. There's the only Yemi Alade. There's the one Yemi Alade. You might see some likeness in certain people, but there is no Yemi Alade other than this Yemi Alade. As long as I stay original, the same way we refer to people like King Sonia Day, ETC, we will be here forever, even after we're gone. So from songs you're going to perform tonight, mm -hmm. can you pick one or two and just tell us about those songs? So, African Body is actually an EP, and my new album will be out in September, by God's grace. But I do have a new single out now, and it's called Fake Friends. And I will be singing that one tonight, for sure. People, I have a new song called Fake Friends. What? C'est bon? I mean, the problem with this is that the fake friends will also be dancing with you while you're playing the song. So I really do wish you guys the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know who you are, right? You know who you are, Dad. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. yeah. It's, a it's a real critique of the sort of social media world where people can become friends with the click of a button, you know? You know. The friendship's a little deeper than that, right? Yeah, I mean, the word friend is being used loosely these days. And it's also unfortunate sometimes that you find that people gravitate more to you when maybe you have more likes on Instagram or you have more friends on Instagram. Whereas the reality of life 
is beyond the, the digital space. Reality is really separate on its own. Like life is really lifing, if you know what I mean. Um, and I just wanted to use this song as a point of reference, just to remind people in their own way to remember to call a spade a spade. Because sometimes our friends and sisters and brothers, bros, sis, they are the snakes in the green carpet, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So just watch your back. Amen. Mm -hmm. So most of the great hits of Afrobeats are created in a studio, right? So talk about bringing it to the stage. What's your approach to that? How do you take something that was crafted in the studio with all kinds of uh, time and, you know, energies that you can do there and bring it to the stage? What's your philosophy? The stage is my playground. The minute I record a song in a studio, I've done my job. And when I come to the stage, I come to play. So at that point in time, what I'm going to do is take the music to the point where it didn't get to in the studio. I bring twists to it. I render it in the way that it comes to me at that point in time. I try to keep it interesting even for myself, because if I'm bored on stage, you will be bored too. So I'm having fun. I am really just exciting myself. Even my band, as much as we rehearse, I'm spontaneous. Whatever the music tells me to do is what I will do, and we just go. And it's never failed. That's great. Anywhere you go, New York, Chicago. about your band? What are we talking about here? Well, I operate a 13-man band, but when I'm on tour, you reduce the number. I think at the moment there is a, five, six, seven, I think there's seven, so that's half. Half, uh, and the most, my favorite instrument is the talking drum. I love, I love the melody, there's nothing like it. And the talking drum is on stage with us tonight. That will be there. Can you do an acapella version of the talking drum? is impossible because the talking drum speaks in its own language. It sure does. And it has the vibration and depth that no other drum has. If you know the talking drum, the minute you hear it, you know it. In the olden days and even up till now, the talking drum can convey messages. If you understand the Yoruba language, you will know what the talking drum is saying. And that's why it's called the talking drum. You need not say anything, it'll speak to you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Always in English or do you sing in Yoruba too? I sing in English, I put in the pidgin language, and then I definitely need put in some Yoruba and Igbo because my mom and dad are from two different tribes. So I mix and blend and I go with the flow. What was that like uh, growing up in a household with both those influences? How was that different for you than it might have been in the same time growing up in one or the other? Did it challenge you in certain ways? Did it open you in certain ways? Or was it just something you didn't question? I think it challenged my mom and dad more than it challenged me. <laughs> How so? Because they were the ones from two different tribes and they had two different families with two different cultures and they were just really trying to make it work, right? But I, on the other hand, was enjoying it. Because, first of all, the food. I got to eat different delicacies. And, you know, my people love culture. So I get to enjoy both cultures. Um, from, the, from the clothings, to the language, to the people and their essence. Um, I really enjoyed it. And then to have both names, I have both Yoruba names and Igbo names. And, and it's, I get to be, to feel whole with both of them. It's a blessing. That's wonderful, yeah. A lot of people in America don't know about African culture in America. Mm -hmm. They just think it's all American. Yeah. And they don't pay attention. They don't. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're getting wiser. We're working on it. Yeah, they are getting wiser. <laughs> people are getting wiser. It's a pleasure to talk with you, really. We're really looking forward to the show tonight. our interview with Yummy Alladay on Planet Afropop Volume 1. I love it. It's beautiful. I love these live recordings. Yeah, those guys on Nuit Afrique, they don't kid around, man. <laughs> we'll be hearing a lot more from them, too. By the way, we've actually run out of time to listen to Las Hijas del Raps interview, but we will bring them back in two weeks. Yeah, that's right. On our next edition of Planet Afropop, I guess we bit off a little more than we could chew this time, right? But we'll take you out with one of their tracks. This is called La Cumbia Quesana, the cumbia that kills. By the way, McQuay, I did a little digging on U.S. record companies and rap artists, and it seems like the main source on this new trend that you mentioned is New York radio personality Ebro Darden. He seems a pretty well-connected guy, and he quotes a big label executive as saying, this is the executive, his quote. He says, the focus is now African music and Latin music. Rappers better stop being boring and talking the same uh, stuff. That's not the word he uses. <laughs> over and over, chasing TikTok success in comment sections. 
And just for a little context, in August, Lil Baby announced the launch and rebranding of his record label Glass Window Entertainment under Motown and Capital Music Group. And he signed Alabama rapper Rilo Rodriguez as his first artist. So rap isn't dead yet. <laughs> of course not. Rap is never going to die. It's just going to iterate into many other things. But it's just, I think, something that is going on in the business. There is a shift happening. Las Hijas del Rap, closing out the first edition of Planet Afropop. And thank you all for staying with us. Planet Afropop is a production of World Music Productions. Support for Planet Afropop comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our executive producer is Sean Barlow. Our lead podcast producer is Banning Air. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. And additional engineering for this edition by Banning Air at Lion Songs Studio in Middletown, Connecticut. Lion Songs? By the way, the lion swan in Cameroon. Well, anyway. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Savion Biggs. Our co-host and director of development is Mukwe Wabe Siyolwe. And by the way, I'm Georges Collinet. Who? Who's he? I don't know what I'm doing here, but... Uh, <laughs> who let George out? Who? 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 Ow! <laughs> okay, George, one more time on that. I know, really. And I'm Georges Collinet, by the way. And I'm Banning Air. And I'm Mukwe Wabe Siyolwe. Until next time... Sarahante. Mangaka. Kwaheri. Kambansoni. Usialepo. Enisha. Shango. Sleep tight, Rosaline, wherever you are. Afropop. Okay, maybe we should do it in three-part harmony. We'd probably be better at it. Planet Afropop, Planet Afropop, Planet Afropop. All right, are we good?